Okay, so good morning, everyone. This is Zane Raza, and today we're going to be joined by Manuel Doderdur from Germany. So we have our first German guest on the show today. He is the co-founder of several things, several different things, but most importantly, most relevant today is he is the co-founder and president of Code University of Applied Sciences in Berlin. Basically, I think they're, I think, well, one day, I'll tell you the guys' story. So Manuel comes over in, to make school a couple weeks ago with Browse. And Browse introduced me to him because, of course, Browse. Good morning, Manuel, or afternoon for you. Oh, Manuel, I can't hear you. Internet audio. No? Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Hi. How you doing? Fine, fine. Exciting times. I mean, you have it as well over there, like everyone's talking about Corona and impact and what to do about it. Um, yeah, but other than that, uh, yeah, we're doing, we're doing great. A lot going on. That's good. That's always tons going on. Uh, actually, the crazy thing I know, I like how you mentioned coronavirus because like May school, we we got we had this week was our spring break and like all my podcast guests say the same thing. I, I had to res reschedule like all of them almost, and and then next the next two weeks we're doing a remote intensive from May school, so all the class will be online. It's like completely different. Okay, cool. Um, give me one second. I just have to make sure my kids uh, don't interrupt us over the next hour. Hey, guys. Uh. All right. So Manuel has kids. Mike, Mike, I can't, I can't hear you, bro. Später, bitte. <laughs> Sorry, uh, my wife's a doctor, pediatrician, so she's not at home yet because uh, there's a lot going on in the hospital. So I have oh. to make sure my kids have something to do. Uh, while I'm trying to get some work done. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, because school and kindergartens have closed down entirely. Yeah, that's amazing. Hmm. So, um, now I'm all set. Okay, nice. So I guess we we can just jump into the show. Uh, I, I think I think it's great because uh, I was just telling my audience, introducing you, like you came to make school actually a couple weeks ago. So maybe that's a good place to start. What were you doing all the way in San Francisco when you're in Berlin all the time? Um, so I got an invitation to uh, to speak uh, at an event in Stanford because there's a course that's looking at innovation systems and especially trying to understand the differences between Europe and, and the US or even more specifically the Silicon Valley. And one, of, one aspect of that is what's, what's happening in tech education right now. So that's why they discovered code because we have this unusual approach to it, to tech education. And they invited me to talk about our approach and how we see ourselves as part of a European innovation system. Okay, so how about how about we start there? Because like for me, as an American and a lot of Americans, I'm sure we we don't really know like the education different like system in Germany. So like for for an American, right? How would you explain like the differences between the two? Is there any like really stark uh, contrast between how like American system works and how Germans educate themselves? Yeah, there's there's a lot of differences. So. Um, for one thing that is um, interesting is that like 20, 25 years ago, only about 20% of a given year of, of students, high school graduates would go to university, study at a university because we have this apprenticeship model that was highly successful in Germany over the last 50 years oh. as a valid alternative to studying. And um, only with basically with getting closer uh, within the European countries, 
uh, Germany became aware of the fact that almost all other European countries have much more um, much more students go to go to universities and get educated academic degrees right. and they started to compare numbers and say we have to have more uh, people with academic degrees if we want to keep up with uh, with the development in the world so that has changed in Germany um, dramatically over the last 20 25 years and now almost 50 percent uh, of any given year of high school graduates go to university which is something quite new for us uh, at the same time our university is compared to university has kept it uh, between themselves and on uh, our businesses so working closely together with businesses with corporations taking their questions and problems and challenges and um, working on them from an academic perspective is not highly recognized yeah, in Germany. This is mostly cons uh, considered as, as someone wants to buy themselves some influence on, on academic outcomes and research. So the purest form of research is uh, a form of research that has, that's not influenced by dirty, money-driven corporate interests. Hmm. And on the one hand, that means our professors, they have a lot of independence when it comes to choosing their topics and driving the research. On the other hand, that leads to a lot of research results not being connected to the real world. And this yeah. transfer of, of research insights and results to, to the real world so they have an actual impact, this is something that we've been struggling with for, for quite a while. I think you can see this uh, pretty well when you look at management education. Mm. Everything that's happening in Germany in terms of modern management education is based on based on ideas that have been developed in the U.S. over in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Yeah. And, and they've been developed in the U.S. because there was a close relationship between corporations and universities. So GE and General Motors and all these companies have been working with elite universities to tackle the question of modern or questions of management. While in Germany, it was still considered uh, a pure science. There were economists and they thought about the economy in a very theoretical way, but they've not been able to create management insights that would have been helpful in the real world. So everything we know about management, we know from U.S. universities. And I think that's, that's a huge difference. So German universities see themselves as um, entities that shouldn't be bothered with, uh, with concerns that, that, uh, from, from normal companies and, and normal corporations. And, and if we look at tech development right now, I think that's a huge challenge because we're still, if you look at the numbers publications, still pretty good when it comes to, to, uh, to research, the research in tech and digital technologies and artificial intelligence and all that. Where, what we're bad at is transferring that to the real world and generating products and companies and startups using the insights that come from academia. I see. So it sounds like there's a lot of like cultural differences, right? Mm -hmm. So, okay. So I'm, I'm trying to, cause I think it's important, right? Like people in the U S still know, like what's the, the story of tech development in other parts of the world. Uh, I think it's, I think maybe it's an important time to talk about your own experience in the education, uh, in system in Germany. I, I watched your Ted talk and you oh, said sure. this, I said this one, you had this one phrase, and I'll, I'll try and pronounce it as best I can. Non schoola sed vite deschimos. Mm -hmm. So what does this mean in German? What what has like, been your experience in the German education system? Well, the, the fact that I'm now talking to you as a founder of a university is based on the fact that our university system is as it is right now. Um, so this this uh, sentence you just quoted is uh, basically says we're not you're not learning or we are not learning for school but for life. So uh, what every student should be if you're not learning to pass a test in school, you should learn something that makes a difference in your later life. But the reality is the exact opposite. Most of the time in traditional educational systems, we are learning to pass a test because someone else tells us to learn something and not because we're really curious, motivated to learn something and most of the time we don't have any idea why this matters for our later lives and this is this is how code university came into existence because we wanted to change this especially when it comes to tech education um, that students 
are motivated to learn something because they've been challenged by a problem they want to solve because they're curious about the technology they want to understand and not because a teacher or professor tells them this is something you should learn because you need to pass the test at the end of the Turing round. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And interestingly enough, uh, just to add that, um, the phrase is, is quite well known, um, but usually in, in a wrong way. So it's been, it's, it's been uh, referred to um, as the opposite as it was intended to. Like everyone understands, yes, you shouldn't learn for school, but for, for life. But the original sentence was the other way around because even back to 2000 years ago, uh, philosophers, because they were training people to become these smart philosophers that can argue anything but don't know how to live their lives. So even then they were struggling with how to create educational programs where, where people would learn something that matters in real life. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like this sounds awesome to me because like there's a ton of overlap between what you're doing, and what May school is doing. Uh, I think I just saw one of the statistics in America, at least, I don't know about in Germany, but like something like 70% of college seniors at other schools tend to not even have a job lined up for after so uh, it, I've looked at your LinkedIn profile a lot and you list entrepreneurship as one of your like skills. I think this is awesome because I'm assuming a lot of your students, they want to either go to companies or like you said, have those like managerial skills and be, do things practically. How is, um, how is being able to self-learn also? Like, have you applied that a lot? If you like didn't have that in your own journey, like through school, how did you as an entrepreneur, like teach yourself through like your own curiosity or whatnot? I don't know if that's- That's an interesting question. Uh, we've talked a lot about this, how, how to incorporate something like entrepreneurship in a curriculum. And for me, I, I don't think you can actually teach that in a traditional way because First and foremost, it's, it's about a mindset. It's about this idea that, and the, the confidence that, that you and your actions can make a difference, that you can go out there and, and change something, set up a business, uh, develop a product that people want to buy, people, people want to use. So it's self, your mindset and your confidence that you can have an impact and you can make a difference. And so we've, we thought about, um, why do we have, why, why have we had the confidence that we could build a university? Um, for me, it was really that I've, I've done this before and it, it kind of worked and I've learned a lot. And um, also I've grown up, academically speaking, in a university that was trying to really encourage people to take risks and go out there and, and see if they, can, if they can change something. It was exactly not the way, the way you, everyone get, is told, follow someone else's path, but um, find your own way, discover new things. So this is what we've been trying to incorporate at Code University, that people get this, that they get inspired with this spirit, that they have confidence um, and that they want to change something, which also means being aware of what needs to change. So there's no course, we don't have a module, no course in entrepreneurship um, that you can see in our curriculum, but at the same time, it's hopefully incorporated in a lot of things that we do. Um, even the fact that we are, as a university, part of a huge, um, basically, co community space where a lot of entrepreneurs, startup founders, freelancers uh, come and work. So our students are already embedded in this kind of environment, and they have a lot of role models that they can see on an everyday basis. Yeah. I think that's like a huge thing for any school, like to have that kind of network. And like, that's kind of the fun thing about education. Like it's, oh, it's like so people-based. You can't like mathematically calculate we're going to have this many people become entrepreneurs in a given year. Uh, so with that said, how do you find these students? Like, what are you looking for in a student? Or like, how do you, like, how does your admissions process look like for a code? Um, so right now we're still in a situations, in a situation where students find us. Okay. We are, right now we have students from 65 different countries. They come from all over the world and we haven't been able to, to discover a pattern. Um, so it's fine code and the stories behind it are really crazy sometimes uh, there was someone sitting next to me in church and they told me that their mother read something about this in the blog and so really weird weird stories how people find code 
Um, what we're looking for are people who, uh, who are interested in technology, who are interested in understanding the relationship between technology on the one hand and society on the other hand, and who have this inner drive, this inner motivation, this curiosity that you need to learn self-driven. This is basically what we're looking for. So we don't need people to already be developers, have learned any, don't have any prior skills. This is nothing really concerned. Have an interest in understanding technology, apply it to change society, and have this inner drive and inner curiosity, while at the same time filtering for um, a very few like toxic behaviors that make it really hard to work with someone. That's yeah. basically the only no-go that we see when we're trying um, to, to, uh, to admit people is our learning concept is very much based on peer-to-peer -peer learning, on group work, on, on projects, student project work. So if people have these characteristics that make it hard to work with them because they're dominating every discussion or they're, I don't know, there's, yeah, as I said, small groups that we and other than that, we just, yeah, we're curious about the world, want to discover things and have what it takes to be self-motivated and not be driven by someone else's expectations. Yeah, it's, it's, it sounds awesome. It sounds a lot like I'm like applying to make school over again because I'm hearing a lot of the same things. I've heard like, by the way, like I have family in Pakistan and like I have one cousin who I always think of when I think of Germany because like growing up, like he would always say, I'm going to, I want to work in, I want to study in Germany. I want to be a German engineer, like, like world-class things like people say about the German education system. Uh, with that said, what kind of resources are there for your students? I know you don't uh, really have teachers in like a traditional sense. How do students go about like their projects when they have a question? Like their, their, what is the classroom setting? How is it set up? Uh, so we, ha we have professors at Code. Uh, um, we have extra lectures that we, uh, that we incorporate in, in our everyday life. But what we're trying to do is be as demand-driven as possible. So uh, the learning journey always starts with students being challenged by the projects they're working on. These projects, uh, they can either choose them themselves. They can, uh, they can others work on projects that our corporate partners suggest. Um, and sometimes even our professors pitch their own project ideas. That's the first step. Students find a project that they're really curious about, they're motivated to contribute to, and they define their own role and, and their topic that they're responsible for. Like the interaction designers, of course, focus on human machine computer interaction. How do users interact with the technology we're trying to build? The product managers are focusing on what's the actual product, who are the users, what's the market, how do we earn money with that? How do we organize the whole thing? And the software developers, of course, focus on, on what software developers do. And they work together in these interdisciplinary teams. The professors are basically uh, waiting for students to have a question. So whenever a student struggles with the thing they are trying to solve within the project, that's, that's when our professors kick in and say, okay, let's talk about this. And they're trying to not just provide an answer to a problem, they're trying to encourage students to dig deeper, to then look at what's the methodology behind this? What's the concept? What's the theory that you need to understand in order to be able to not just solve this problem, but every kind of that problem that's similar to what you're struggling with right now. And, and for that, we're offering units, workshops, seminars, lectures. We also have a huge database of learning resources that our students can work with, that they can add resources themselves. So whenever students discover useful learning resources online, offline, they can add this to the database. They can leave re-ratings so other students can see what has been helpful to other students in the past. So we're creating, trying to create an environment where students get a lot of support if they're asking for it, but when no one tells you what to learn before you figured out that you actually want to learn it. I see, yeah. I think this is a really great time to bring up because at May school, we're going, about to go into our intensive periods where it's like one week classes are shut down and, and like people just, they, all they do is work on a project. How do you like, 
I know you mentioned some things there, but for like someone who really just isn't sure, like they have too many interests and they can't like dial mm-hmm. down and find one specific thing to work on. What's like one tactic that like you found is really helpful for finding a project idea? Uh, so the f- of every semester is basically a huge bar camp. Uh, so over a couple of three to four days, uh, there are a hundred different to go and in two minutes present the idea for a project that they have. And at the end of this first week, we, we encourage our students to have to at least at least have listened to listen to the people who brought up the idea to better understand what they're trying to do and, and see who else would be interested in working on that. Um, because in the end, the most important thing is that someone, that everyone has something they are really eager to work on. That's the, that's the most important thing. If, if you don't really care about the project you're working on, you're not really motivated to learn. If you're not really sure if you can contribute anything, then it's really hard to to find this inner inner spirit and motivation and energy to to dig deep and to really stay stay uh, stay awake at night and, and try to solve a problem. So that's the most important thing for us in the beginning. Students need to find a project that they really want to work on. Yeah, sure and then that, everything falls into place. Yeah, I mean, like when you say it that way, it, it's so relatable because, like, even this last term in one of my classes. Like it would be the most boring time in like the lecture periods. But when we actually got to one project, one specific thing, like I actually started learning because like I could like take the things from class and see how in like this context, I was like a climate change project. Like that's one of the things I'm passionate about. It was actually like sticking now. Like I could see how it applied to, it was like a, a, an analysis problem. I could see like, okay, this was a math thing. And now this is how you translate a Python. And then just seeing it come together at the end was so like, it felt like real, you know? Uh, okay. So what mm-hmm. about, have you ever thought about what if some students, I'm sure you've thought about it, but I'm just curious. What if there are some students, so it sounds like each student doesn't have to come up with their own idea. They just form teams. So what do you, what if like there's a student there that's always, um, they're like kind of a flaw, the follower, right? Like they always end up just following the person. Does it like, does Code University uh, focus on making sure everyone at least like they take a turn as I'm the one leading the project or I'm on this project, I'll just be the one like developing it. So no, not necessarily. Um, so not everyone has to be a leader. Not everyone has to be the creative genius that always comes up with new ideas and problems to solve. Um, if you're, if you're happy with your role, I think it's perfectly fine to just be the expert and specialist who contributes to other people's projects. I mean, this is, at least in our economy, this is uh, something you can find hundreds of jobs for. Like just being someone who understands technology, does not have their own crazy ideas, don't want to be their own startup founder, just uh, have a job where they can use their understanding of technology to contribute to a project or product that they they like and that they find valuable. So this is a, a freedom our students have. And if we, if we look at our students, they're, they're not all these extrovert wannabe startup founders. There's a lot of more introvert people that are not the born group team leader. And, and they still have a place at code because they can really develop their expertise. They can learn a lot about interpersonal skills and how to be part of a team, how to make sure their voice is heard and they're not overlooked. They can, uh, there's a lot of workshop in our interpersonal skills programs about this. But in the, it's totally fine if you say, I'm, I'm really looking for a job. I want to be an employee that, uh, that is valued for what, what they're contributing, but they don't want to be leaders in, in any sort of way. Hmm. Yeah, I like how you, you bring it up. And to be honest, it goes back last night. I read one of your articles on LinkedIn called Computer Science versus Software Engineering. I like to kind of go into this a little bit because mm-hmm. I think that goes along with like the self-awareness and like, like that kind of piece. So the skills that a software engineer needs to have, because, and this is important for us, like, especially I, I realized, because I guess this is what makes us all about. Uh, you say one skill is like adaptability with people and like having those kinds of people skills, uh, being really good at like the three D's, like design, documentation, and development. 
So the one thing that I, that really stood out to me is design, right? Because like people might like I know maybe in the U.S. maybe it's different in Germany, but like software isn't really like associated with being a really good designer and like an artist almost. How do you help your students get better at like designing products? Design can, can mean different things in, in the context that we're talking about. Uh, design in an, in an art, artistic way almost is, is more for our interaction designers. So we have a study program about this. Um, design in the context of software engineers means for me at least something different that it's, it's more about being able to understand context. So um, designing um, this context means for me start to understand and structure, for example, the most of the time very fuzzy problem description that you get from someone, basically in the future from, from a potential customer. Usually they don't come with a very detailed and, and thought out problem description. They come with what might be wrong or what kind of solution they might be looking for. So having a design competence for soft means being able to design a process that helps you integrate all the feedback from your customer, or the, um, the, the input that you get at the beginning, and end up with something that is uh, structured in a way that you can actually start working on a solution. So design competency in that, uh, that regard doesn't mean for us being able to draw beautiful pictures, but really design a process, design an innovation process, understand how innovation process and design thinking works, for example. So it's a methodological competency rather than an art competence. I got you, yeah. Yeah, I like how you brought the confidence term because during your TED talk, I remember that was one of the things I was most curious about. And I think like it's really bold, but I can kind of see how like it could cause problems too. Like, how do you go about when, like like what we said, there could be students with completely different skill sets, they have completely different goals for your school. How do you go about designing different confidence frameworks for different types of students? Uh, so it's it's the same frame for every student, but they can use it to create their own profile. So of course we have to design some boundaries and define some boundaries to say, okay, this is just the, the, the topics that we can, that we can offer competence, uh, competent professors for, that we can have learning resources for. But within this framework, our students are free basically to pick their own topics and add them to their individual profile. Because looking at the industry out there, it's, there is no perfect profile for a designer or developer. There's lots of different people with lots of different profiles and skill sets. And especially those who can bridge the gap between two disciplines are, uh, are very, very successful usually because th this is what needs to happen, that people from different disciplines work together. So we would always encourage a software engineer to not just look at the software engineering curriculum, but look at the interaction design and product management curriculum and just find out what they're, what they're curious about and add it to their profile. So the framework's the same for everyone, but we encourage everyone to develop their own profile, of course, with guidance that's offered by a of looking at the projects and the roles and responsibilities they have within a project to see what is actually useful skill in what I want it also depends on what you what your job you're looking for. So these are conversations that students usually have with their personal mentors at Code, where you say, "Okay, this is what I'm aiming for. What what skills do I need to add, or should I add to my profile? Or this is a project I want to work on. What do I still need to learn to to be able to contribute to that?" And in the end, I think there's a lot of different profiles that our students will will graduate with. Of course, there's always a, like a necessary set of basic skills that you need to have if you want to call yourself a software engineer. So right. a database module will always be mandatory because you can't run around and tell everyone you're a software engineer if you have no idea about databases. So there's some, some fundamentals that people just need to have, but at the same time, a lot of freedom to, as I said, create your own profile using the framework that we provide. Yeah, this sounds really interesting. Um... So it sounds like a lot of there's like a like a lot of differentiation between the types of students that come out of code. Uh, 
I want to ask, how do people like pay for the school? Um, I know because at Make School, right, we have the ISA program. It's like a, it's like kind of an interesting thing. Like people, we say like when this when you come to Make School, the school takes a risk on you. How do you go about at Code University, like kind of lowering that risk for people that come? Because it sounds like they come in and they're trying to do something that's completely different from the rest of the system. Yeah, that's a great point because um, not, not everyone might know this in the US, German universities, the state-run universities are basically free. So German students are not really used to paying tuition. Um, nevertheless, over the last 20 years, a lot of private universities have been able to establish themselves in this market. And probably just due to the fact that state universities, uh, even though they're free, have some disadvantages. And uh, so we, we charge tuition um, and we offer our students the same, basically the same model as, as make school. We, we call it, uh, the, so to easily understand the pay later model. So you don't pay first, you don't pay on a monthly basis, you pay when you start earning money, but it's an income share agreement. So you pay a percentage of your actual income for, for a number of years. And with almost 50% of our students opting for this uh, for this model, we have the same alignment of interest as you have at May School. If we're doing a great job giving them a great education, they will have good jobs, um, they will earn serious money, and they will pay their fair share to help us uh, run this whole program and finance the next generation of students who are opting for this pay later income sharing. I see. So I'm curious to hear when you do you ever get a chance to talk to like professors or the heads of other colleges and how so if if so like how do they how do those conversations go? Uh, that's interesting. So we we're really basically every week we have visitors from from other universities from colleges uh, German or foreign. Uh, just last week, we had visitors from Kauspilot, which is a very uh, unique business school from Denmark. We had uh, a delegation for, with, of professors from, from the Technical University in Norway. It's really all curious about what we're doing and how we're doing it. And, and that's, that's especially because in the beginning, we had a lot of discussions. Do we want to go the make school way? Basically say we have all the freedom, but we don't hand out state recognized degrees. Or do we go the other way saying we become part of this highly regulated system, except all that means uh, like all the regulations that we need to adhere to, but uh, at the same time are able to just hand out state, state degrees, basically bachelor degrees that are state recognized. And we went the way to become a state recognized university from the very beginning. And one good thing is that now other universities are interested in what we're doing, because I would assume if a German university would look at make school, even though they might find it really interesting what you're doing, they would always say, yeah, they can do it because, well, they, are, they have all this freedom because they're not regulated as we are. And, and we can claim by this, we have the relations, we have the same higher education law. So what we are doing, basically every university in Germany could do. And that's why they become really interested in, in how we're doing it, understanding that we're playing by the same rules. Wow, oh. I, I don't I don't mean to like correct you, but like now in my years, actually the first year of make school is offering also like accredited bachelor's degrees through Dominican University, and so I think that's also we have the same growing pains because like students. I, I heard I heard about the change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like now, like what you said, like students complain like, oh, we have quizzes now, and now we have to like we have to file for FAFSAs, but it's kind of like the balance, I guess. So one thing, mm -hmm. yeah, I remember when you came to make school, uh, we talked about how students have like, a problem showing up, like at our school and your your school. No one at Code even mm -hmm. has to go to class. I I heard. So, uh, how how is that going for you guys? How like yeah, how is it showing up? Um, so. This is something we're, we're, we're really still struggling with uh, because on the one hand, we really deeply believe in this idea of uh, 
forcing our students to learn anything that they don't see uh, as valuable to themselves. So rather challenge them, encourage and inspire them than force them. On the other hand, this makes it really hard to plan things. Like we're trying to get great speakers, keynote speakers, we invite them, they come to Berlin, they prepare. And then from these 10 students or 12 students that signed up, five or four actually show up. And that can be really demotivating for everyone uh, planning courses and uh, offers for the next semester. They are trying to take the radical approach now and say, you know what? Uh, we always have this idea of demand driven uh, in mind. So we are uh, like taking this seriously now. If you don't ask for it, we won't offer it. So there's now this platform where students can request workshop seminars, input basically to any topic. And as soon as there's four or five students uh, co like committing to, yes, we want to have this workshop or we want to have this lecture, then we're going to organize it. And within two weeks time, there's going to be a talk or seminar or workshop about this. But then it's because there's actually a couple of students who actively asked for that. Um, let's see how it turns out. The other programs are still trying to predict what students might be interested in, especially looking at the technologies that the project are working with. Um, and so far, it, it seems to work out quite quite well. But I'm, I'm right now really curious to see what the feedback will be at the end of this term from the product management students about this radically demand-driven um, de demand approach where we don't plan ahead but just wait for students to ask for things. Absolutely, yeah. So you must have really strong what, like culture of feedback. Like you must constantly be asking like, here's a survey or how do you guys go about getting feedback from your students? Can you still hear me? Uh, yeah, the video is a little, little shaky, but. Ah. Yeah, it's all good, I can hear you. Maybe I can. Is it better now? Uh, yeah, it's like the same, but it's fine. Cool. Yeah, so um, we're still struggling with it. One thing, and this is something, we, the feedback we get from a lot of students is they're just not used to them that they actually that them showing up or not makes a difference because usually in, edu in traditional educational programs, you're either just forced to be there. So you don't have a choice and you don't really care. So you don't really make this active decision. Or if it's like traditional university programs in Germany, um, there's this huge lecture with it. There's 200 people in a room. So if you show up or not, just really nobody cares. Uh, so being in this environment where it actually makes a difference, whether you show up or not, is kind of new to some of our students at least so they probably also need to learn that this that they matter that whether or not they show up matters that we're listening to them and we're trying to um to just create things that they're asking for and that it's even worse if they don't show up and so it's part of the educational process part of the learning that happens i think yeah yeah I, it's it, i totally agree with that like i think i, I remember, always remember this quote that browse like you know Browse at Mixed School, right? Mm -hmm. He always tells us, like, the world is run by people who show up. So that's, yeah. like, the thing that he's just preaching all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. With that, I think it's... So you... Mixed School, I want to get into more, like, student resources, too. I know you have... Mm -hmm. How old is Code University, actually? Is it, I know this isn't your first year, but... No, we, we took in the first year of students in 2017. So... We have now three three years of students, basically. Okay, and it's is it a four year school? To, uh, it's a three year bachelor program, okay. but since there's so much freedom for students to pick their own courses and modules and projects, uh, we we can't really predict for every individual student how long it will take them. So some students graduated ahead of time already. Uh, hopefully, some of these students that started in 2017 will will graduate over the course of this year. And then there's probably some that will just stay a little bit longer and, and take more time, learn more things, do more projects. 
this this is part of the, the freedom that our students have to. They don't have to be finished after three years. They can stay one or two more semesters, even maybe two more years if they want to, if they think it's still valuable for them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the honesty you're talking about because even at May school, like it's it we say it's a two year school, but we have all these super seniors who say longer than two years at the same time. Super seniors is a nice nice title, yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, how do you like I know we talked a little bit about that conference competence framework, but how do you decide when someone is ready to graduate? Is it like just a number of credits they have to meet or something else? Yeah, so this is um, part of the regulation regulatory system that we're in. If you have 180 credits, you are basically a graduate. Uh, so you have to write a bachelor thesis. You have to do a capstone project in the end. That's that's part of our own program, program design. And then you have to have 150 uh, credit points, basically of of normal modules that you've done before. So this is the formal way of of uh, defining if someone is able to graduate. And then it's hopefully the feedback that students get from us and from the professors, because we've tried to replace traditional grades and give more meaningful qualitative feedback. We have defined our own proficiency levels that we, uh, that we try to, like that, that hopefully helps students to better understand where they are and what's still possible for them within a given topic. Because if you, I don't know uh, about your experience, but uh, so for me, if I got a, I don't know, a 2.3 or let's say a B plus in anything. Um, I'm not really sure what that means. Like I can, I can figure out if I'm happy or unhappy with the grade, but it doesn't really tell me what is still missing or how far I've gotten with regards to the expectations or how I could continue learning. So the, the quality of the feedback is really bad. It's just basically just a number. And maybe it tells me if I'm below or above average, but that's all not really helping with my future learning. So we're trying to have ways of giving students feedback, but make them understand what is it that I already know? What is it that I don't know? How good am I at judging myself, my own um, at self-assessing my, my capabilities and my knowledge? And where do I continue learning so I become better at this topic? And, and so in that regard, we try to really give our students a lot of indicators as to whether we think they're, they're ready to, to graduate or not, or whether we would encourage them to take another round and, and do a little bit more learning. And, but this also goes in, in another direction because um, usually dropouts are a bad thing at universities, especially in Germany. Yeah. We, for some students, we really encourage, to drop, uh, to encourage them to drop out because yeah. if, if, you're, if you're just, so a lot of our students, when they come together as team and they work on a project, at the end of the term, they're really excited about what they've built and they see the potential to, to work on it a little bit more and maybe get it up and running, um, get customers out there and maybe even found a startup. And if you're in that situation where you feel this dynamic, we have a team, you have dedicated people, why should you stop working on that just because it's a new term and you're enrolling in new modules? In that case, we just say, go for it. Give it a try. If it doesn't work out, you can always come back and continue studying. But just because you're looking at this degree, the certificate you want to have in the end, not pursuing this opportunity doesn't really make sense. So we haven't had any, any formal dropouts in that regard, but we would always encourage students to, to really pursue these kinds of opportunities, even if it means that in the end, if they're successful with founding their startup, they would become dropouts. So for us, there's good dropouts and bad dropouts or good and bad reasons to, to drop out. And if it's still, if you have the feeling that there are other opportunities out there that are more valuable right now, why should you continue learning or continue studying? And the other way, if you're still the, if you still have the feeling that being at code is still valuable to you, you're still learning useful things. Why should you stop just because you might be able to graduate? Yeah, this is, this is crazy. Cause like hearing that from you and like, I also like hear that from people like Jeremy, I feel like that's like the way of the future is like, being okay to drop out of school, you know, because it's like, it sounds like you have a, a must have a really like individualized approach to your students. How mm -hmm. do like, how do like the teachers and and, and students that make school uh, at code, how do they like do they form these like coach coachy like um kind of relationships? Do they pick their coaches mm -hmm. or? Yeah, so every student has a personal we call them personal mentors. Mentor that they uh, meet with, let's say, over the course of a semester, at least two or three times. 
So for the mentors, their responsibility is to just know what's going on with their students, with their mentees, know where they are right now, what they're working on, the, if they're generally happy or unhappy, what they're struggling with. And for the mentees, the students, it's important. Like we say, if you don't know whom to approach, it's always your mentor. That's the person that's always there for you. And it doesn't really matter what the topic is. So this is something our students can choose at the, at the end of the first term when they've gotten a chance to really get to know a couple of people. They can give us three or four names and we'll try to match everyone with one of those names as a mentor. Um, and, and then it's up to them what, they, what they're making of this mentor-mentee relationship. This is, this is the first thing. The second thing is that uh, from, from second semester on, every student usually is part of a team working on a project. And these projects have a, a professor dedicated to like supporting them and um, being aware of what's going on, helping them, even though it might be an interaction design professor for a tech team. It's not that they can answer all the questions, but they are just aware of what they're working on and they can tell them, you know what, you should talk to, I don't know, a professor in software engineering product management about what you're struggling with right now. So professors are aware of what's going on with the projects, but also with students in the teams and the third thing is that every team has a team coach they usually try to focus on teamwork and how help teams to become better at being a team to become more productive to deal with conflicts to uh yeah deal with become better at communicating collaborating and of course they are always pretty aware of all the difficulties the integrate interpersonal conflicts that that are going on so there's a lot of touch points between our professors and our students. And that means our professors, all the lecturers, everyone involved, they, they know, uh, know just what's going on with students, what they're struggling with um, and how they can be helpful. Yeah. But just maybe to add this, this means that for us, uh, the, the, the size of our community is something we're really concerned with. Like looking at the number of applications we have every year, we could grow much faster than we're actually growing. And this is because we are aware of the fact that being a small community where people know each other actually is a quality that we don't want to miss. And we can't, so we don't see code just becoming a thousand students over the course of the next two years. Yeah. With what we're doing right now, maybe with uh, with others in other cities, maybe with other programs, but with what we're doing right now, we need to to have a size. Um, the community needs to have a size where people have this close relationship with each other and just know each other. Mm. Yeah, it sounds that's that's actually sounds very intentional, and and like that's the thing like a lot of middle school students are afraid of too because like our school is also growing like very rapidly and people like are questioning it a lot uh so i hope i hope that goes well with you like i i to be honest i don't know like what the answer could be to that like people at like say like we could do different campuses but then mm -hmm. we also there's always like kind of trade-offs with that uh wow so Yeah, it sounds like you like you have like a, a really solid plan and everything. And like I I'm just like I'm curious, is there ever I know us and Browse, we talked about like an exchange program. Cause like it sounds like something is it's so similar to make school. Do you ever have plans for like allowing people from other uh, other of these like uh non traditional tech schools come into Germany and uh, exchanging in that regard? Uh so we don't have a lot of experience with that, but we're totally open for it. So whenever uh, you know of a make school student who wants to spend, uh, uh, let's say at least half a year in, in Germany, in Berlin and become part of code, uh, we would always be open for that. Of course, there's a limit to how many students can come in at every, any, given, uh, at any given time, but um, if it's just a handful and they're from a university or an educational institution that has a similar philosophy as we have, um, we would always say, yes, let's, let's go for it and see how it works. Well, what we're concerned with is students coming from, uh, to, from different educational institutions uh, because what we see is that it takes some time to, to just adapt to the way learning happens at code. So this would be a prerequisite, but I wouldn't be worried about this if it's actually a make school student. So, and then the other way around, I can see a lot of code students being interested in just, uh, 
getting to know how make school does things, uh, how learning at your end works and then spending some time in San Francisco. So maybe we can actually set up something like that. Wow. And if it's a similar number of students, maybe they can even exchange, uh, exchange, I don't know, dormitories, housing or whatever. So they can sleep in each other's beds basically. That'd be funny. I'll, I'll, I'll pass that along uh, for sure. Uh, so now this gets, I remember because I, a couple months ago, actually, I interviewed the co-founder of Make School, Jeremy. So I feel like mm -hmm. I, I always go back to that in this interview. I asked Jeremy at the end of our, so I'll ask you this question as well. Like, well, first of all, when you, when you add it all up, I want to talk about like outcomes, right? We're at the almost at the end of the show. So I always like the, this at the end. When it comes up to it, like on average, right? For a three-year like education at Code, what is the value of that in dollars, or um, I don't know what the in euros for your students? That's a tough one. <laughs> well, to uh, I don't know. I I tend to say it's invaluable uh, because the. Well, at least if, if we're really, if our students achieve what we are aiming for, then this is something that basically changes your whole life because it's not just learning tech skills. It's not just understanding technology, be able to create digital products and earn money. It's, it's first and foremost finding out what you want to do with your life, what you're curious about, what you want, you're motivated to do while at the same time being exposed to this fragile and, and very complicated relationship between technology and society. So like finding the sweet spot where you can apply what you know, work on things you really want to work on and earn money to just have a, have a decent life. If we can help students find the sweet spot, uh, that's, I mean, that's, that's bingo. That's, that's what everyone's aiming for. And I think if, if you have that, uh, that prevents you from, from having a burnout in your mid-40s because you don't know why you're doing all these things. You, um, you will never feel really demotivated to do your job because it's intrinsic motivation that keeps you, keeps you doing what you, what you love doing. Um, and so it's really hard to put a price on that. Um, and it has nothing to do with the specific content of any module. It's more that we challenge our students to start with why, start with themselves and figure out what is it that really drives them forward as a person. And if you find that and then also learn how to pursue your interest, how to learn what you need to learn to solve the problems you want to work on. Uh, basically, if you know where you want to go and have the means to get there, then, then you're all said and done. And then that's, that's in the end, that's what we're aiming for. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like that really comes from the heart. Like, cause like everyone at this school, like everyone I come on, I ask the podcast, like give like advice to students. And like when they, when I ask them that question, that's what they say back is to like, know what you want to do, know the why, know all this kind of stuff in like, in like a really hypothetical world. If you could go back like 20 years do you think code is the type of university you would have wanted to apply to? Uh, definitely. De definitely. Not, not because, um, so I, as you probably know, 20 years ago, technology was different. Uh, we were just discovering the internet. Um, but no, it's actually that the environment I, I would love to have studied in. And in a way, I, I actually found a similar university. It was not that radical and it was not that explicit, but it was um, people around me, my professors were really encouraging us to, to figure things out for ourselves, to, uh, to ask questions, to challenge beliefs and assumptions, and to develop this kind of critical perspective on, on, on established theories and, and concepts. So, yeah, but definitely, but definitely, if I, uh, if I had a chance, I would definitely apply for code. That's, that's always a good sign. It's, that's literally what, like, Jeremy told me, like, like dude, like, he, he, he said, like, that's the type of school that may, he would want to go to is make school. So good mm -hmm. sign, good sign. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's one thing we haven't talked about, so I can, might be able to briefly mention it, because for me, that's really close to my heart. Is, uh, in addition to the three study programs, we have what we call our science, technology, and society program. 
And this is where students are really challenged to think about uh, this relationship, as, as we already mentioned, between technology and society and what impact technology has or should have or actually has on society. And this is where you can get a chance to read ancient philosophers, to have discussions about economics and about new books and old books and really get your brain working, gather knowledge. Um, and in the end, what we call is make sense of, of the world and have this ability to, to make critical judgments, not just critical thinking, but have a position, have an opinion, a perspective, an informed perspective on these all these, these complicated and complex questions that, that basically the society our life is asking us all the time. And, and the, but it's also a place to just make music, uh, do active workshops and uh, I don't know, write poems. So not just being a techie, becoming um, uh, like a technology expert, but also uh, develop as a human being. That's also a very important part of this program. For sure, for sure, yeah. Absolutely, like, like, like. It sounds really bold what you're doing, to be honest, at Cody University. I've like we're almost at the end of this show here, and I just want to keep you for like two two quick things. Do you have any? First of all, a, a kind of a fun question I always think of: Does Cody University have a mascot? You? Not no no. I mean, we have a couple of uh, campus dogs that are. Um, Oh, yeah, that, that, that might have the potential to become a mascot. Um, there's, okay, some Linux fans, of course, and a lot of technology companies now, but there's not, not the one, one mascot that we actually have. Maybe, so I think the, uh, the closest candidate would be one of our campus dogs. Yeah, it's kind of on the back burner, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing at May school. Like we have one person's dog named Ducky. Who's like, we mm -hmm. all, everyone loves the dog and like people say like, that's your master, but it's, it's kind of good. It's, I, that's really ironic. Actually, you have that same thing. Uh, all right. With that said, I like to call this the end of the show, but the conversation doesn't end. I really hope like people at Mesa will like find this and like, maybe there's be like some connections. Maybe they can work on projects with people. Maybe like they, they could recruit at Code University. I'm not, I don't know. Yeah. In, in both directions. And I think I want to follow up on this idea of an exchange program, definitely. Great. So with that said, last thing, what question do you have for people at May School, people in America? What would you want to ask the people in, the, in my audience, basically, about anything like code or? Uh, so what, what, what's very important for me is that I, I see the U.S. right now as um, and has been and, and will be for, for quite a while, the, yeah, one of the main drivers in the world about technological development, which, which also means uh, that the people in the US are the ones defining how technology influences our lives. And as far, so what I'm, what I'm looking, what I'm seeing now is that there's a, uh, there's a lot of companies being very successful because they are trying to intentionally hide how technology is uh, influencing our lives and even manipulating uh, the way we live our lives. And so this is what I really, what I would like to see is a lot more people who understand technology, who are at the forefront of technological development, but also have a strong voice in how technology should influence our lives and what kind of, um, how it, what the relationship between technology and society should actually look like. And so this is, this is what comes with being, being the leader in, in technological development, but becomes this responsibility of just also having a strong opinion about how technology should be regulated, how technology should be allowed to influence our lives, and also making sure that everyone has a chance to, at least on a very basic level, understand what technology does and has the potential to do to us and with us and how we can use it. So that's something I'm, I'm really hoping for because I'm kind of desperate about Europe in that regard. So um, that's, that's definitely, I'd love to see more of that. Not saying that it's not happening, but um, it's definitely something that needs to happen much more often with people having both this technology expertise and a very strong sense of how this technology should be used within society. Absolutely. And I know like people would browse people like you, 
like that that's definitely it's important to have these kind of voices in the society you talk about that so with that said thank you so much for coming on manuel it's been great talking with you hope you enjoy your weekend with the family and all that uh yes yeah, so. definitely will it was a great great pleasure talking to you and thanks for inviting me um and yeah i hope this wasn't the end of our conversation so good luck with your podcast and i uh, hope we can talk to each other again absolutely have, have, have fun and code thank you <laughs>